WCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, 14 September. That's what it is. Almost halfway through September. My God, it's fall. We have autumnal thoughts, yes. I love the autumn. Ah, yes, indeed, that's my spring. Uh, today, I, I made a list last night. Oh, gee, about midnight. I wrote down 18 things I needed to do on the air today because I've been gone for a lot of Tuesdays and marathons coming up next two Tuesdays. Got to try to sell KPFA, try to get uh, subscribers and persuade you to join us here in our <laughs> in our cause. Marathons, right? And I won't be on Thursday mornings during the marathon, so. I got all these things. I made a big stack. And, you know, uh, by the time I got through the New Yorkers and all this good stuff, I just gave up, threw up my hands. And I thought, I'm going to go back to the beginning, do what I used to do in old days. I used to just bring one woman writer or maybe two compare and contrast, you know, or the book and the movie, that kind of thing. I thought that's the thing to do. Focus, they tell us. Focus. Figure out one little thing. Just, you know, narrow it down till it means something. Then I turned around and I thought, oh, no, nothing matters. Uh, Abby Lincoln is dead. That happened in middle August. That matters. Abby Lincoln. How I loved that woman she had so much what's the word possess i i think a lot of people seem to think that she was not the celebrity that lena horn was or that the um, masochistic women you know like billy holiday the the broken-hearted ladies the archetypes uh you know they all suffered abby lincoln did not suffer I, I remember her in so many films. Actually, the one I liked best was rerunning the other day. Uh, she doesn't sing in that one. It's called Nothing But a Man. It's with Ivan Dixon, and I recommend it highly. It was a stunner of a film. I remember it because I was, at the time it was, uh, uh, by the time it was released, I was teaching high school students in Oakland, and it was, <laughs> it was almost, it, it was such deadpan realism. It was almost camp, but, 
uh, it was the tell it like it is, just the facts, ma'am, kind of movie. And it's this heartbreaking story of a guy who's just trying to make it in the South. And then he thinks to go North and then he gives up and finds a good woman, stays South. And the two figures that were most interesting were the fathers, uh, his father and her father, the two choices. Her father goes along to get along. He's the... Uh, black preacher in the small town he compromises uh, he says it's hard to talk to the white man these days uh-huh. the other one the father of uh, Ivan Dixon he's a tragic uh, he's a reactionary suicide as Huey Newton would say he more or less believes what they told him about himself and he crashes out uh, with the help of alcohol uh Never mind, if you're interested in 1960s, 70s realism, look for the movie Nothing But a Man. Uh, it goes along with several other pictures. Uh, the other one at that time was called The Cool World. Never see that anymore except at the uh, film archive. The Cool World, right. The kid who just wants a piece. He just wants that gun when he gets it, of course. Here's a dead one. Anyway, my pile of New Yorkers here. I hope I get around to those today. Uh, I got a good book. Madness. Madness. Oh, look, a good book. Madness at the Gates of the City. Just came in the mail. Uh, recommended by Howard Zinn. It's by Barry Spector. This one is, oh, this is the kind of book I love. I'm going to take it home. And, uh. Play with it. See, the myth of American innocence, madness at the gates of the city. I'm a mythomaniac. Howard Zinn says this book is strikingly imaginative, truly an original work. And uh, the right people like this book. Jean Houston, that's a writer and uh, a woman that I admire. She was raised by uh, Hollywood screenwriters and comedians and... Uh, Yes, her book is called A Mythic Life, Jean Houston. She likes this book. She says uh, it should be read by anyone who wants to make a difference. Uh, there are good words about, uh, let's see, exhuming the ancient gods of the Western psyche, says Mumia Abu-Jamal. Michael Mead, he wrote The World Behind the World, you know, men's movement stuff. An Indictment of America's Obsession with Innocence. A Treatise on Tragedy and Myth. Provocative and Challenging, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Okay. It's helping us to look more honestly at the false innocence that sustains our illusions. Right, we all know that. My last illusion, sometime around uh, the day we dropped the second bomb, the one on Nagasaki, you know. The first one I think I understood because they were afraid. The second bomb, well... That was overkill. Anyway, uh, right. Uh, what this book is all about is the triumph of myth. The thing is, we got a lot of old ones. We gotta, we gotta chuck and we gotta create a new one. New myths for old. New myths for old in the postmodern world. Yes. Madness at the gates of the city. The myth of American innocence. Yes, this will keep me up for nights, nights, nights. There's one chapter here. I love it called The Killing of the Children. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Francisco Franco, yes, long live death. Rudyard Kipling quoted, If any, if any, any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. Mm-hmm. Back uh, in... Uh, Ancient times, ancient times. Uh, back a few years, in the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther said, I would rather have a dead son than a disobedient one. <laughs> Dalton Trumbo in Johnny Got His Gun says, For democracy, any man would give his only begotten son. Oh, Napoleon's the best. Napoleon said, You can't stop me. I spend 30,000 men a month. George Patton said, I love it more than my life. Ah, the Roman generals said that it was a sweet and noble thing to die for your country. Ah, yes, I could not love thee half so much, my dear. Loved I not honor more, says the man. That was, I think, Tennyson back in the Victorian age. Why would anyone sacrifice his life for an abstract concept for country, real estate, belief, language? Mm -hmm. Anyway, this book talks about the mythologized world and the demythologized world. Uh, They start out with the Greek myths, some of my very favorites. Uh, Oh, this is a whole semester. This is a great... uh, a great course, the myth of Dionysus, <laughs> the Bacchae, right. And mostly, you know, it's about this war of fathers on their sons. I remember once writing that uh, nothing would change until the fathers, well, the parents, loved their children more than they hated their enemies. In that time... We will have uh, peace. Until then, of course, men will sacrifice their children. (laughs) For country, yes. For God, country, and family. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of wonderful stuff about the pagans here, about Dionysus and uh, tragedy and comedy, the social meaning of tragedy, the suppression of the feminine, the threat of the feminine. Got to get rid of those girls. Mm -hmm. You know how that is. Uh, Women seem to symbolize so much uh, beginnings and ends. Uh, The myth of American innocence, the royal house of Thebes, American dualities, the wilderness, the West... Red others, black others, the myth of progress, the myth of growth, the denial of death, and on and on it goes. Uh, Revenge and the woman in the burqa, boy psychology, twin towers, oh yes. All this stuff you know about, hmm, oh, let's call it the war on women, all the stuff about, uh, Pornography, Christ, the devil, scapegoating, uh, teen pregnancy, abortion, blah, 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 blah. It's all part of uh, 
rejection of the feminine. I think it's called fascist psychology. They're still out there, you know, shaking, shaking a stick at us. Uh, anyway, this book is going to try to reimagine America's purpose. <laughs> That's a bit. It's called Madness at the Gates of the City. And it's about the myth of American innocence. Maybe I can get that one as a premium to use during the marathon. Either that or my task will be to put together a collection. Uh, our department head has suggested I put together a collection of the best of. Yes, <laughs> Jennifer Stone collected. That'll be the day when I'm collected. It might be worth it. I think I can get nine or ten hours on one CD and... We can use that for a premium. Those of you who would like to uh, give your great aunt Harriet uh, <laughs> something, something with a feminist fist in the air, all this stuff about nature and woman, you know, it's all the same thing. Anyway, let me tell you about these two articles for just a minute, and then I want to go back to uh, my original purpose in life which is the biography and history of women writers, what I call the literary saints. These two articles I recommend for those of you who insist on knowing what's going on. In the September 13th issue of The New Yorker, that's December 13th, 2010, you can read an article by Terry McDermott that scared the pants off me. It's called The Mastermind. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the Making of 9-11. This guy looks like a clown. Now, Bin Laden looks like... Uh, talk about myth. Bin Laden looks like uh, the second coming, right? But this dude, the one who is supposed to have designed... Uh, 9-11, the Twin Towers and the other, uh, let's call it, attacks, assaults on America. This guy's about 45, he was born in 1965. Hmm. And he seems to be an interesting two-faced guy. I just can't get over the uh, look on his face. He is pictured here with a long black beard and with silver threads running through it and he, he looks like a goofy kind of doofus in a white uh, headdress photographed uh, at Guantanamo where he has been detained since 2006 and where he still awaits trial. Mm -hmm. Yes, he looks like something that would be in a movie, a send-up of uh, Islamic mythos. Uh, with Bin Laden you have drama and you have uh, a guy that... Uh, well, the the incredible, invisible man, the disappearing dude, uh, Bin Laden manages to be Byronic. I find him to be uh, sadistic. Uh, both men are archetypes, historical megalomaniacs. Uh, they demand of God a role worthy of them, their obsession with themselves. Uh, they wish to be the hand of God. They wish God to be uh, working through them, whether or not these nutcases uh, 
are the sort of guys who um, rule nuclear nations or the kind that killed John Lennon. There must be some way to identify the uh, the gene, the little the little um, little magic spark that results in all this primate grandiosity, this uh, self righteous psychosis. Uh, I was the sort of child in the fifties who was taught that, well. They managed to convince me that education could fix anything.、Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, yes. If yes, if people just understood, you see, and then comes along Sarah Palin and she says, "Yes, we understand. All right, we understand that they're idiots." Yes,、uh, I was taught that the twig can be bent. That if we were affectionate and gentle.、Uh, If we brought children into the world with uh, care, uh, we could teach them that compassion makes sense, that compassion is reason, that compassion is just enlightened self-interest. Yes, yes. Okay. Anyway, the Mastermind by Terry McDermott can be found in the New Yorker of September the thirteenth. And let me just give you let me just give you a little snippet of this because. I know some of you aren't going to go rushing out to the store and get it, although you can get it online.、Uh, it's the September thirteenth issue of the New Yorker.、Uh, now, this guy Mohammed, right, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, has been cold-bloodedly straightforward when he talks to his interrogators. He told them that the Holy Tuesday planes operation. That's what Al Qaeda called the 9/11 assaults. Was quote designed to cause as many deaths as possible and havoc, and to be a big slap for America on American soil. Testifying before a military tribunal in 2007, oh, Mohammed likened himself to George Washington. He boasted that he planned. The 9/11 operation from A to Z. Killing, he said, was simply part of his job. Quote, "War start from Adam when Cain. He killed Abel. Until now, it's never going to stop killing of people." Unquote. In that appearance, he boasted of murdering the Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. Quote, "I decapitated with my blessed right hand the head of the American Jew Daniel Pearl in the city of Karachi, Pakistan." For those who would like to confirm, there are pictures of me on the internet holding his head. Unquote. Since June 2002, when U.S. officials first identified Mohammed as the so-called mastermind of 9/11, he has become one of history's most famous criminals. Yet, unlike Osama bin Laden, he has remained essentially unknown. Efforts to uncover more than the outlines of his biography have produced sketchy and contradictory results. 
And this guy goes on to mention his own book. This The author of this article, Terry McDermott, mentions his book, Perfect Soldiers. That was published 2005. Perfect Soldiers. He goes on to say, even basic facts have been in doubt. There are, for example, at least three versions of his birth date. For almost the entire decade before he was captured in early 2003, Mohammed was a fugitive, deliberately obscuring his tracks. Meanwhile, bin Laden was hosting television interviewers, giving speeches, distributing videos and text versions of his proclamations to whoever would have them. I guess bin Laden was the PR man, right? Anyway, um, the author, Terry McDermott, goes on in his article to say, In so far as we know Mohammed, we see him as a brilliant behind-the-scenes tactician, a resolute ideologue. It turns out he is earthy, slick in a way, but naive, and seemingly motivated as much by pathology as by ideology. Came. See, one of the interrogators describes his Arabic as crude and colloquial, and his knowledge of Islamic texts as almost non-existent. A journalist who observed Mohammed's appearance at one of the Guantanamo hearings likened his valuable performance to that of a Pakistani, Jackie Mason, good God. A college classmate said that he was an eager participant in impromptu skits and plays. A man who knew him from a mosque, you know, talked about his, his quick wit, his chatty, glad-handing style. He was an operator. In at least one important way, though, his boasts are accurate. Mohammed, not Osama bin Laden, was the essential figure in the 9-11 plot. The attacks were his idea. They were carried out under his direct command. Mohammed has said that he went so far as to resist swearing allegiance to bin Laden and al-Qaeda until after the attack so that he could continue pursuing them if al-Qaeda lost courage. Now, the United States, that's us, I guess it's us, intends to try Mohammed in a venue and a jurisdiction yet to be determined. Okay, there you go, folks. Oh, I, I, hate, to, I hate to be dismissive or mock this because, of course, it's deadly serious. This criminal is, uh, he's the one. He, yes, he must be the man. He's the one. And, uh, the specifics of the trial, where it should be held, whether it ought to be a military or a civil hearing, this has been the subject of intense debate. See, it is the problem, folks, my, my uh, footnote here says. Define, yes, define. Are we at war? You know, where does the crimescape end and war begin? As I understand it, wars are between nation states. But obviously, the problem is getting to be one of semantics. Uh, 
In the absence of bin Laden, it's hard to imagine a more spectacular legal proceeding even without a location or a prosecutor. It has been called the trial of the century. <laughs> I thought that was O.J., pardon me. No, no, no. The sadness of this mess. Um, I don't know. I remember someone talking about the great war criminals of the mid-20th century saying foolish things like we should put these guys in great big glass houses in the middle of the thoroughfare and let people stare at them forever. Maybe we'd learn something. Anyway, the article goes on to say, whenever Mohammed may be tried, he seems to have done much of the prosecution's work for it, describing himself as a righteous, relentless executioner whose version of making war knows no bounds. But the process will be aimed at assessing guilt, not causes. It will not tell us much about who Mohammed is or about the forces that shaped him, which are, to an alarming extent, still at work in those places where he came of age. The article goes on to talk about... Uh, the suburb of Kuwait City where this guy came of age, yes, where he grew up. Uh, the creation of a 21st century criminal. This is all so interesting. A world where <laughs> there is a sort of civil war all around the globe. Fascinating. Uh, all the usual suspects appear here. <laughs> he was the second to last child of nine, the youngest of four boys. Well, that can get you into trouble. <laughs> he went to the kind of schools that should have uh, created an enlightened dude. Uh, hmm. Fairly comfortable life. Uh, anyway, I don't have time to read the whole thing. Look it up if you're interested. Obviously, this guy found his way to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. That's the source for so many of these guys. And as the article says, uh, this, what do we call it? This, this wave, this belief system does seem to be drowning parts of the world. Uh, Oh, if only, if only we knew how to make a change. Anyway, I put that one aside because I'm running out of time. I just wanted to tell you about one other thing, all about the money behind the American right wing. It's called Covert Operations, and you can find it in the August 30th issue of The New Yorker. Yes, this year, 2010. It's all about the money. The Billionaire Brothers. The ones who are waging the war against our president. Uh, it's an article by Jane Mayer. Love Jane Mayer. M-A-Y-E-R. And she's writing about David and Charles Cott. K-O-C-H. Oh, one of my favorite PBS programs last night, I noticed, is sponsored by this right-wing dude, David Cott. Yeah, well, you know. All those oil companies, they give us Masterpiece Theater. Anyway, there's a picture of David Koch in 1996. Uh-huh. 
He and his brother Charles, the lifelong libertarians that have quietly given more than a hundred million dollars to right-wing causes. Look it up. It's a lovely article. Makes your blood run cold. <laughs> they even bought Georgia Pacific lumber, these guys. Anyway, the Cott family, the billionaire brothers, the money behind the Tea Party crowd. Check it out. You can find it. It's in the August 30th issue of The New Yorker by Jane Mayer, Covert Operations. The men with the money. They are the ones who finance the men with the guns. I will be back on the air next week at this same time. No, Thursday. Thursday morning at 8.20 till then. This has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The following candidate statements belong to the author of the statement. Hi, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal with a brief but important message. As a listener to this Pacifica station, you know how important it is for its news, jazz, and classical musics. You can help Pacifica fulfill its vital community role by voting in upcoming local board elections. This is your station. Shouldn't you participate in programming, budgetary, and policy issues? Check out the candidates at PacificaElections2010.org. Thanks for listening to this Pacifica station. Look out for your ballot in the mail. If you do not receive your ballot or you need replacement, call 1-866-PEACE-01 and leave a message. And contact your local election supervisor, Oriana Saportas, by calling 510-250-2471 and writing to LES underscore KP.